This podcast includes content that may be disturbing and hard to listen to. Listener discretion is advised. I'm waiting for the end of the war and I'm waiting for the liberation of the Baltimore. My native town. I'm sorry. That's why we try to participate in all the programs which concerns the children. And I want to popularize English. I want my children like speaking English and I want to open the horizons for them because English is the only way to understand the whole world, to construct the dialogue between cultures of the world and um, as far as we've got now internet, different um, devices uh, to open the world, they must know English and IT technologies, it's the future of our society of course. That's why it's my task to work with children and I'm happy that I work as a teacher because my head is full of different ideas, ideas. And, and that's why I'm then I don't think about war. It is February 2019. It's been five years since the democratic breakthrough in Ukraine, five years since the Russian invasion and occupation of Crimea a homeland stolen and subject to re-education and continued cultural genocide. A hot war has raged in the eastern region known as Donbass and doesn't seem to be stopping. Millions of internally displaced people and refugees. This podcast brings you through the events that have occurred and the story of the human cost of this conflict. Why this topic? A year ago, upon my mentioning of Ukraine, someone asked me, but didn't that already get solved? Didn't the conflict end? The short answer is no. Nothing has been solved. Russia continues to shell Ukraine. This conflict is a deadly, slow-burn war in Europe. I do understand why Americans and others far away may not know about what is happening. There has essentially been a media blackout when it comes to the war in Donbass. It's unfortunate, but typical. People get bored or used to wars. Another horrible event occurs, and everyone moves on to the next catastrophe even if the war and suffering continues. My name is Elina Alem Kent. As a Crimean Tatar American who has spent five years of my life in Ukraine, I intend to bring some light on the events that have occurred in Ukraine the past few years and the lives of internally displaced people and refugees that have been affected through this podcast. The first clips you have heard was the battle that took place in Debaltseva, followed up by Svetlana, a native from this town, as well as two million others who have not had a place to call home for five years. Debaltseva is still under Russian occupation, and she, alongside many, continues to hope to return someday. But before going into what happened currently, we must go back to the preface, before the invasion and war, the revolution of dignity. Ukraine has had its fair share of protest cycles in its 27 years of independence. Two major revolutions show the growth of the country and society. When I first moved to Ukraine in 2004, I just so happened to arrive right before the peaceful Orange Revolution, the late 2004 People's Protest that was sparked due to falsified presidential election results of that year. People took to the streets and gathered in Maidan, the center of Kyiv, the country's capital. 
The word Maidan has Turkish and Arabic roots. It means a place. It's a physical place in Ukraine, but also metaphorically represents a state of mind. Now in Kyiv, the square's full name is Maidan Nezalezhnosti, which translates to Independence Square. When something is wrong or deserves celebrating, Ukrainians gather at Maidan to fight against injustice, to come together to have fun, for political and for non-political events as well. By one count, the Maidan has hosted four people's revolutions in the past 30 years. The 1990 student Revolution of Granite that presaged the breakup of the Soviet Union and Ukrainian independence in 1991. The 2001 Ukraine without Kuchma protest in the wake of the 2000 murder of the country's leading investigative journalist, Georgi Gangadze. The 2004 Orange Revolution and the 2013 and 2014 Euromaidan, also known as the Revolution of Dignity. On Sundays, they close the widest road in Kyiv, Khrishatyak, which leads right into Maidan, for the public to enjoy. My parents would take me there to enjoy the music of street busklers, performances of dancers and artists. There aren't just one, but two McDonald's is located there, as well as a Puzata Hata, the cafeteria-style homemade food chain that all students and families visit to eat cheap, delicious recipes that all babushkas make. People rollerblade and bike freely down the road into the square, where buskers dressed up as famous children's characters charge you for taking pictures. I guess you could say it's the Kiev version of Times Square, except there are no skyscrapers, bright lights, copious tourists that slow you down, traffic, or that strong smell you can't quite place that is unnerving. When I'm back in Ukraine for the summer, my friends and I walk down to Maidan to watch the fountains dance with lights and accompanying music. In 2004, the Maidan was filled with orange tents, flags, flyers, outfits, and people decked from head to toe in orange winter wear. There was music, dancing, and concerts that brought out famous artists such as Akyan Elzi and Eurovision winner Ruslana. There was also snow and bitter cold, and those in power who stole the presidential election on behalf of the prime minister of the time, Viktor Yanukovych, hoped protesters would give up. But the Ukrainians who peacefully gathered to protest the false election results succeeded in reaching the country's highest court, which overturned the falsified election and ordered an election rerun, thus restoring victory to the rightful winner, Yushinka. Ukraine had wanted to grow closer to the EU and the West for some time, much to Russia's dislike. Although Ukraine has declared itself independent from the Soviet Union back in 1991, Russia very much continued to exert its influence through corrupt politicians who act as their puppets, including the president elected in 2010, Viktor Yanukovych. Remember him? The same man who tried to steal the vote in 2004 via massive corruption, voter intimidation, and electoral fraud hired American political strategist Paul Manafort to remake his image. Yes, that Paul Manafort, who later managed Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and has now been found guilty in the Robert Mueller investigation. Manafort's advice to Yanukovych worked, and successful parliamentary and presidential campaign wins for Yanukovych in 2006 and 2010 followed. While the country was expecting Yanukovych to sign the EU trade agreement in late 2013 and bring Ukraine closer to Europe, he decided not to do it. Instead, he went to Vilnius, Lithuania, and did not sign it. He met with Russian President Putin, who offered Yanukovych $3 billion in loans to bring Ukraine closer to Russia. Yanukovych backed away from Europe on November 21st, the same day in 2004 he'd stolen an election and the Orange Revolution began. Ukrainians were outraged. 
Mustafa Nayem, a well-known journalist, posted on Facebook, calling people to not click like, but also to come to Maidan and start something, to show they did not have to agree with the government turning back to Russia rather than towards Europe, reversing several decades' worth of progress, to come to Maidan as they had nine years before, to peacefully protest and bring positive change. I think the main difference is that in 2004, <clears throat> we managed to bring our leader to the power. And at that point, when we uh, achieved that, we kind of went home and stopped care anymore, you know. We didn't care what's going on there. We just were watching and keep, kept on criticizing on our kitchens. But uh, Euromaidan was different in terms of people participation. They realized that power is hired uh, people for, uh, it's, a, it's a hired position, you know, in a way that they hire uh, politicians to deliver. And people also realize that they have to control. And they will not sit at home and will just criticize, but they will participate, they will monitor, they will control physically if needed with protests, with actions, with coming to office and demanding and so on. So I think it was a different social contract between society and, uh, and the state. I felt that during your Maidan, you felt it almost physically. You were standing there in the streets and you felt that the um, attitude from the, from the people, from the street to the, towards the stage, it's not love, it's not admiration, it's a demand for delivery. People very often, they were very disappointed with the opposition who was standing on the stage. They didn't like them necessarily. They were criticizing them. They knew their shortages and problems. But they thought, okay, you are there at the stage. At this point, we're giving you the power to realize what we are standing here for. And this is your mandate for this particular time. And so the main change for me and the main difference that at that point, we changed the power. And during the Euromaidan, we changed ourselves. I'm Svetlana Zelishchuk, member of parliament, Ukraine. Before Svetlana became a member of parliament, she was a prominent journalist running an NGO called Center UA that was involved with different projects and campaigns nationwide, from monitoring the financial assets and corruption as well as fighting for the right of free speech, something that is not necessarily granted in Ukraine. We were also doing an initiative called Stop Censorship because when Yanukovych came to the power in 2010, he imposed, uh, he imposed a censorship on a number of the TV channels and journalists was, were fired. And we were fighting for the freedom of speech, for access to public information. We were drafting the legislation in that sphere and so on. Uh, we also was doing uh, other initiatives, but one particular affiliation and very important affiliation was uh, coordination of uh, Euro Maidan Facebook page and it was at that point it was the biggest Facebook page in the region and the fastest growing Facebook page in the region and we were able to reach out to 4 million people a day and uh, it was particularly important because many channels were censored and for many people in the world, not just in Ukraine, but in particular in Ukraine, it was the only means to coordinate uh, uh, their efforts and to get the information what is really going on in the streets. And this Facebook page worked. Ukrainians did come, particularly students. 
My good friend Vlad was 16 and a student at the time. He was visiting Kyiv, looking at universities he wanted to apply to when the students first came out to the peaceful protests. On the next day, I was in Kyiv uh, because I visited the courses in Kyiv and I was there. And after my course, I, I went to, to Maidan Zalezhnosti to see what is happening, what's going on. And already there was a lot of people, many, many people. Uh, they were... Uh, um, they were protesting uh, against that, uh, uh, against uh, the things that uh, police make to and the government make to the students, and it was very very peaceful after that. Um, there was uh, the people were only protesting, and uh, in the next day I woke up and I turned on the TV and I saw that the people are fighting with the police and. Uh, after that, uh, it uh, begins uh, uh, really hard times. No, no one, no one believed that it's really happening. That the uh, police are against the people. They are not protecting people, but they are against and the government. They do not care about uh, what people think and what people want and what citizens want. And uh, after that, when. Uh, there was uh, for on the first uh, kill uh, on the Maidan, uh, the people in the whole Ukraine they were going on the streets to to protest. And uh, I remember I was in the school. There was lessons in the school, and we were sitting, and I had an iPad, and uh, I was watching stream. A live stream from Kiev, and I saw that uh, someone was dead. They killed someone, uh, and uh, after that, we, after our lessons, and during our lessons, uh, me and my classmates, we went on the street too, on the streets too, because uh, we wanted to change something. People wanted to to change everything, and. Uh, <sighs> It's uh, it's very hard to remember this, and uh, it's it's so emotional for me because because uh, we believed that we can change the situation, and everyone in uh, in Ukraine was on the streets in their cities, in their towns, in their villages. The country was outraged when the Interior Forces special troops became violent and beat up the students. How could the police beat up their children? More protesters came out. Some estimates had the new crowd at close to a million. An attempt to clear the square in the middle of the night failed in December. Yanukovych installed what were known as the dictator laws in January of 2014 to prevent the rights to protest, free speech, and activity of civil society. The first two protesters were killed, and protests turned increasingly militant. The smoke from burning tires was the biggest protection for the protesters, choking up the armed security forces whenever they tried to move in on the protesters' camp. In mid-February, over a hundred protesters, known as the Heavenly Hundred, were murdered by snipers under the president's orders. When you walk through Maidan today, you can see the portraits of the Heavenly Hundred, 
placed alongside Institutska Street, rising to the location where the snipers were in perfect position to take the lives of innocents. The final days in mid-February were total chaos. Armed security forces against protesters with literal sticks and stones. Maidan, the beautiful center of Kyiv, was blackened with soot. Government agents torched the trade union building that had been used as a temporary medical station, killing a still unknown number of people trapped inside. I remember this day very vividly. High school had just ended and I was unaware of the killings that had been occurring throughout the day. I got back home and entered my living room to find my parents Skyping with Vlad. He was crying and describing the events that were currently going on in Kyiv. A student from his school had gone to Kyiv to help the injured in Maidan. He hadn't told his mom that he was going. And within 12 hours, he was dead. His name was Roman Hurek. He was a student of psychology in Ivana Frankivsk. And when he was, uh, yeah, he was 21 or 22 when he died. And he was killed. He was killed by a sniper on the Maidan. Uh, uh, he was uh, like, he helped, uh, he wanted to help to injured a guy who was, who gets shot and he wanted to take him back, but he, he was shot too. He has a helmet uh, and he has a shield uh, from the wood, wooden shield. Well, the sniper killed him in, in his head and uh, in the three days when there was a funeral. Uh, the whole city, it's very hard to remember this. It's, the whole city was was on the streets on that funeral. The whole city. I remember we we hadn't classes. The school schools and uh, universities were closed because there was there was the biggest funeral that I ever seen. Because it was he was a hero who died there, who died for his country, who died for the people who stayed home in the safety and he risked his life and he lost his life for for the country. And uh, he was twenty two or twenty one, like like I'm in this age right now. To understand how young he was and how how much he wanted to do. Uh, uh, my friends who was very close to him said that uh, in his uh, page on the uh, contacte in the Times on social media he wrote a status that uh, uh, freedom freedom of death everyone. Uh, we need to go to, I, I'm talking to everyone, we need to go to, to Maidan to protect our freedom. And, uh, and then he died. Uh, there was uh, heroes of the best and certainly there are many people who's younger than me, who was, there was one guy, he was only 17 or 18, he was, he was child. And there was also old people who were 70, 60, 50 years old. And all they died for, for the freedom. And people keep dying in this time 
when uh, most of people are sitting in their houses and on the east, east of Ukraine uh, soldiers are sitting uh, there on uh, the wall. But uh, Maidan showed us, showed to Ukrainian people that we have to fight for our freedom, that human rights it's a most valuable thing and that humans lives are has no price and uh, no one can decide who have to live and who have to die the ukrainian people persisted they demanded justice and came up with three main requests first they insisted on the release of political prisoners that have been taken throughout the months second they demanded a rebalancing of power between the president and parliament. And third, early presidential re-elections. As the violence continued and more civilians died, the demand morphed into an immediate resignation of Yanukovych by 10 a.m. February 22nd. In the middle of the night, his authority ebbing away, Yanukovych fled from Ukraine with stolen loot, seeking asylum in Vladimir Putin's Russia. In the 93 days of the Revolution of Dignity, 125 people had been killed. Almost 2,000 were treated for injuries. 65 people are still missing five years later. The Revolution of Dignity succeeded in preventing Ukraine's slide back into what would have become known as Ruski Mir, the Russian world. The new Ukrainian government signed the EU trade agreement that Yanukovych had rejected. The country looked forward to the renewed opportunity for a brighter future. But there was no respite. On February 23rd, 24 hours after Yanukovych had fled, Putin's response emerged in Crimea. So-called little green men appeared. Within three days, Russian forces took over the Crimean parliament and military bases. If you'd like to know more about the Revolution of Dignity and the specific events that unfolded, I highly recommend you check out the Oscar-nominated Netflix documentary, Winter on Fire. It does a really good job explaining the socio-political context and events that occurred in Ukraine in 2013-14, to to those who might not have had previous knowledge of Eastern Europe. It's composed of cell phone footage and other video footage, combined with post-revolution interviews of citizens and activists involved. In order to understand the events of Revolution of Dignity and the immediate invasion of Crimea in 2014, I sat down with Mustafa Nayem. An Afghan-Ukrainian who came to Ukraine as a refugee when he was a young child, Mustafa was the journalist who originally posted on Facebook calling people down to Maidan. After the revolution, he was elected as a member of parliament. Crimea was territory of Ukraine and inside Russia, and of course, after broken up of Russia, uh, of Soviet Union, uh, we had this agreement that this is the territory of Ukraine. And I think for uh, for Russian leadership, it was unacceptable to let Ukraine go from this under their influence. 
and Crimea it was territory in which they had uh, military base and this military base for many years actually they were expanded and many people in Crimea was Russians and Ukrainian government for all these 25 years they didn't try to make this territory you know mentally Ukrainian because there were many Tatars there are many Russians and we were very calm that, that, that okay this is our territory and that's it and Russia used that they used that the existence of this military base exist uh, existing of Russian population with all these sailor sailors who left there and married Ukrainians and they had children and of course they're kind of Russians and etc and they use this use this because they could do that I think actually that and the second reason is of course their military base they're afraid that this military base will be under control of enemies or NATO or someone others who will not be friendly to them that's why they, they it was instinct to stop it they couldn't stop you know social movements and mobilization but they could took out territory when it comes to the annexation of Crimea there are several stories that circulate on what exactly occurred in February to March of 2014 including Russian disinformation let me tell you clearly before the Russian troops arrived there was no majority population in Crimea or Ukraine that wanted to be a part of Russia there was no majority voting for union with Russia in March of 2014 there was no legal referendum, just the appearance of a process, with participation percentages and vote totals simply made up. A big lie. On February 22nd, hours after Yanukovych fled Ukraine, Vladimir Putin had a meeting with his security staff in order to discuss giving asylum to the ex-Ukrainian president. The situation in Ukraine that we начать работу по возврату Крыма в состав России. In this propagandist documentary, Crimea, A Way Home, shown on Russia 1, the main Russian state TV channel, the two-plus-hour film starts with a one-on-one -on -one interview with Putin. Putin here says, the situation in Ukraine played out in this way, that we are now forced to start work, to return Crimea to be part of Russia. On February 27th, men in Russia-styled combat uniforms with Russian weapons but without any identifying insignia appeared in Crimea. Ukrainians called them little green men, Russians polite people, as the soldiers manned the roadblocks, seized the military bases, and the parliament building of Crimea. When asked about the little green men, initially, President Vladimir Putin denied they were Russian in a press conference on March 4th. Yet three weeks later, Putin congratulated these Russian officers in the Kremlin for the Crimean operation, issuing a victory medal for the return of Crimea. If you Google search Medal for Return of Crimea campaign, you can see an image of the medals given. One fascinating detail, the dates of the campaign are clearly branded as February 20th to March 18th of 2014. What does that suggest? The order to start this Russian campaign to seize Crimea by force with military personnel and assets deployed from Russia proper to add to the thousands of Russian personnel already on the bases in Crimea, came two days before Yanukovych even fled Ukraine. The die had been cast. Katerina Brukanova, a 
a Crimean refugee who fled and worked with Mustafa Nayem, is the deputy head of the organization Ukrainian Association of Internally Displaced People. She described the start of the military presence to me in Russian. At the beginning, when we saw the presence of the Russian military in our neighborhood, when they took over local military bases, and this was very scary, we were 100% sure that a war would start. They blocked the bases and did not let the Ukrainian military leave. We started bringing food and water to the blockaded soldiers. We thought that any day a war could start. In Crimea, you could see it was a planned attack as well, because 18,000 Russian military personnel arrived to Crimea. So we saw somehow the Russian military were allowed to come through the border. Everything had to have been planned. For two weeks, we essentially sat with our suitcases and thought that the shootings will start. There was a shared fear. Panic settled among the people. Many stopped going to work. Nothing was happening in the city except for the horrifying panic. On March 16th, Russian authorities held a so-called referendum. The official results stated there was an 80 to 85 percent voter turnout, in which 96.77% of the votes were reported in favor of Crimea joining the Russian Federation. The specificity was designed to make the results seem more real, but the numbers, simply put, were fake. The official reported results of Sebastopol, the reported number of those who voted, was the equivalent to 120% of the entire population, not just men and women, but even babies and children who weren't eligible to vote, plus another 20%. I'm just going to go over these claimed numbers one more time. An alleged 80 to 85 percent voter turnout, 97 percent of votes in favor of Russia. The last time the United States had a voter turnout at 80 percent was in 1876 between Rutherford B. Hayes and Samuel Tilden. The highest voter turnout in the United States in the last two decades was at 58 percent in 2008 and in 2016. So how in the world did Crimea achieve these numbers? This reminds me of an article written by Joshua Keating titled The Dictator's Dilemma, to win with 95% or 99%. let us go over who else has claimed to receive over 90% of the vote. The 2007 presidential referendum in Syria, in which Bashar al-Assad supposedly received a 97.62%. 99% of the vote has gone to the Castro brothers and Kim Jong-il. So what were the real numbers? The head of the Crimean Tatar community, who was denied the right to return to Crimea, Mustafa Jamilev, said at the time that their sources in Crimea estimated no more than 30 to 40 percent of participation overall. Nearly all Crimean Tatars, who comprise 13 percent of the Crimean's population, boycotted. That estimate received confirmation from a surprising source, the Russian president's own Council of Civil Society and Human Rights. In a classic oopsie, the council posted a report online that indicated turnout only at 30%, with only half of those voting in favor. That would indicate that only 15% of Crimeans voted for annexation. The post was quickly pulled down, but not before people read it. I asked people who I know who live in Crimea about March 16th and got pretty much the same response. Yes, there were poll booths available. They were also accompanied by tanks and armed military personnel. Numbers aside, it was clear what would come next. All Ukrainian state offices became Russian in just two days. 
There must have been planted Russian officials amongst our people, I think. There was such a quick overturn to Russian representatives. It was such a smooth transition. New Russian banks showed up to replace the Ukrainian banks. Suddenly, this new life had started for people. That is why I think this was all planned long ago, because a transition this smooth and quickly to become Russian? Katerina and 50,000 Crimeans left occupied Crimea to go to Ukraine-governed territory, where they could continue to live and speak freely. When we arrived to Kyiv, we didn't have total fear anymore. We weren't scared for our lives. But Russia wasn't done. The war in the East was just to begin. Just a few weeks after the illegal annexation of Crimea, Russia took its next step in a plan that it dubbed the Novorossiya, New Russia Project. It sent its agents to take over the eastern and southern cities of Ukraine and try to pay off agents of influence to spark revolts they termed people's uprisings. In mid-April, Russians affiliated with the military intelligence service known as the GRU and the intelligence service FSB worked with sympathetic locals to take over government buildings in the cities including Slavyansk, Kramatorsk, Mariupol, Harlivka, Makivka, Trushkivka, and Zdavinka. Russian tourists arrived from across the border, asking how to use local ATMs, directions to certain government buildings, and even foolishly burning the local Donetsk soccer soccer team flag because its colors, orange and black, reminded them of the 2004 Orange Revolution. This act, even more than the Precision Special Forces seizure of the government buildings, was the clearest sign that Russians, not locals, unhappy with Kiev, were driving events. The Novorossiya project aimed to carve off nearly half of Ukraine, from Kharkiv in the north, through Donbass in the east, all the way to Odessa in the south. The core was the eastern coal and heavy industry region known as Donbass, sharing a border with Russia, with Donetsk and Luhansk as its two large cities. Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, cities along a key rail line, served as the forward beachhead for the Russian effort. The director of the Slavyansk occupation, a Russian nationalist named Gurkin, or Strelkov, Arrow was his nom de guerre, weeks earlier had been torturing Ukrainians in Crimea. Six months later, Gurkin was back in Russia. But Ukrainians fought to take back their country, rallying under the slogan, if not us, then who? Volunteers crowdsourced money for body armor and supplies, forming volunteer battalions that liberated Slavyansk and Kramatorsk in the July of 2014. Today, they are functioning cities under government control, accessible from Kyiv by a six-hour inner-city train ride. While Kramatorsk was hit by a Russian rocket attack in January of 2015, leading to civilian casualties, there are no longer frontline cities, though you can visit and see evidences of war. A bombed-out bridge, a former psychiatric hospital used by a pro-Russian maniac codenamed Motorola as a torture center in the spring of 2014. An estimated 15 to 20,000 people were displaced during the fighting that took place in Slavyansk until Ukrainian forces were able to liberate it in early July of 2014. Barely 10 days later, a Russian anti-aircraft unit which had been deployed from inside Russia shot down Malaysian airliner MH17 over eastern Ukraine, killing 298 people on board. 
This is the conversation between Igor Belzler, a lieutenant colonel in the Russian army, and Verenin confirming that they had shot down the plane under the assumption it was a Ukrainian military aircraft. We have just shot down a plane that was Miner's group. It fell outside in Akievo. Yes, Major. How are things going on there? Anyway, damn. Well, we are 100% sure that it was a civilian plane. Are there a lot of people? Fuck. The debris was falling straight from the plane. Are there any weapons? Nothing at all. Civilian belongings. Medical scraps, towels, toilet paper. Documents? Yes. One belonging to a student from Indonesia, from the University of Thompson. Video and audio of the unit shooting down the plane are available on YouTube. The NGO Bellingcat has done an excellent job of using information available on the web to track the missile unit which entered from Russian territory into Ukraine and back to Russia after the plane was shot down. On one of the tapes of the shootdown, you can hear the swearing once Russian and local pro-Russian officials visit the crash site and start describing the suitcases, clothing, and toys they see scattered around. Most of those killed were Dutch and Australian tourists. A month later, in August of 2014, Ukrainian forces were driving further towards the Ukrainian-Russian border, threatening to reclaim all of its territory. Putin responded by shelling Ukrainian units with Russian artillery located on Russian territory and sending in Russian armored units to destroy the Ukrainian advance. Russian units encircled the Ukrainians in the village of Ilovaisk, offered safe passage, and then opened fire, breaking their word. Officially, 366 Ukrainian soldiers died. Unofficial estimates are over a thousand. Since many were in volunteer battalions, the Ukrainian soldiers did not have dog tags or official registration. Many of those who survived walked 20 miles on foot through sunflower fields. The Ilovaisk massacre led to the first Minsk agreement for a ceasefire in September of 2014 to stop the fighting. But the Russians kept pushing, violating the terms of the agreement. Ukrainians, known as cyborgs, held the Donetsk airport for 242 days longer than the famous World War II siege of Stalingrad, until the airport dispatch tower collapsed and the Russians overran the airport in January of 2015. That led to another showdown battle and another round of negotiations. In February of 2015, Russian President Vladimir Putin, Ukrainian President Petro Poroshenko, French President François Hollande, and German Chancellor Angela Merkel spent 17 hours in Minsk, Belarus, for an additional agreement. This agreement called for a ceasefire within 72 hours, withdrawal of heavy weapons, the release of hostages, delivery of humanitarian aid to those who need, full Ukrainian governmental control restoration over the state border, and constitutional reform in Ukraine to provide for special status for certain districts in Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts. The ceasefire deadline came and went. As at Ilovaisk in August of 2014, Russian armored units deployed from across the border and circled Ukrainian units dug in around the key rail hub of the Baltseva and attacked. Again, Ukrainian forces suffered heavy losses, over 100 killed, much equipment lost. As much as politicians hoped the Minsk agreements would lead to peace, five years on, none of the conditions agreed to in September of 2014 and February of 2015 have been implemented. Since then, an additional 2,000 Ukrainian soldiers have died in battle, defending Ukrainian territory, and countless civilians as well. The UN this month estimated the total number of killed in Donbass at over 13,000, but no one knows for sure. A majority of them are civilian. Russia-led forces continue to shell the front lines and destroy the homes of Ukrainians. 
the number of internally displaced people forced from their homes has risen to two million. Ukraine has not had a break for five years, just as they succeeded at pushing out a corrupt kleptocratic government and securing a new beginning of reform, they were forced into a grinding war of attrition. 7% of their territory is occupied, 20% of their industrial base destroyed, 2 million IDPs and refugees needing assistance and the chance to resume their lives. Once again, civil activism has filled the need where government capacity was lacking. Journalist turned MP Mustafa Nayem and activist Oksana Nechiporenka founded a program called Go Global, bringing international English speakers to teach at summer camps. In the summer of 2017, Go Global East brought children away from the frontline communities to summer camps near Kiev to give them some normalcy for a few weeks in the summer. I volunteered with Go Global, spending several weeks in a Black Sea community near Crimea and several weekends with the IDP kids from Donbass. There, I met Svetlana, one of the English teachers at the school. She herself is an IDP, whose hometown is Debaltseva, which is still under Russian occupation. She relocated to another violence-affected frontline community, where kids walk to school with the sound of artillery shells landing in the background, living in an apartment owned by those who had fled to more secure cities. Well, now I work in Papasna in school 21 as a teacher of English, and uh, I do my best to, to make my students happy and to make happy myself because I'm waiting for the end of the war and I'm waiting for the liberation of the Baltzava. My native tongue, I'm sorry. That's why we try to participate in all the programs which concerns the children. And I want to popularize English. I want my children uh, like speaking English. And I want to open the horizons for them. Many of the children, alongside the young men that have been sent to the front lines, are suffering from various forms of post-traumatic stress syndrome, or PTSD. It's not normal for kids to have to hear the sounds of war going back to and forth to school, but they do not have a choice. Over the past five years, it has become their normal. A friend of Katerina's, an IDP from the east, relocated to Kiev. When celebratory fireworks were firing nearby, her daughter, who was only four, ran to her mother thinking it was the same shelling that lived close to in their hometown and exclaimed, Mama, it's boom, boom. Alena Vinogradovna, a lawyer from the Right to Protection, had this to say. When it was 2014 uh, and people flee uh, from that area under constant shelling, uh, children were really, um, uh, really scared and affected and this uh, condition uh, is still relevant for these children. Like they, um, when they hear fireworks, for example, or something uh, loud, uh, they um, rec uh, recalled the, the chilling and um, the conditions where they uh, run away from from that area from hostilities. They can't sleep. They uh, can't like be calm, and it's really difficult for them. That's why it's and my task to work with children, and I'm happy that I work 
as a teacher because my head is full of different ideas, ideas. And, and that's why I'm, then I don't think about war. Do you have a family with you? I have. I've got a husband. We live together in Papasta, but my two daughters, they live in Kyiv. Mm-hmm. The older one, she uh, she has been living in Kyiv for 11 years already. And uh, the next one, she was living just in Donetsk when it began, everything this. And she also moved to Kyiv. So I'm happy that they are together, that they support each other, help each other. And usually during my vacations, I come to Kyiv. In the east, there is still, in a sense, much chaos and the war is intensifying. According to our friends in Donetsk and our co-workers from Donetsk, from hearing what is taking place there, I cannot imagine how one could live in the DNR. LNR. I do not know how people there can live, because it's practically impossible. The groceries there are extremely expensive. They can draft men to the front. They can take women too without asking. In the beginning, they confiscated cars just because. People with foreign makes were scared to drive them and would leave the cars in garages because they would get stolen from the streets. Houses were also confiscated, businesses too. Living there is impossible. I think they all need to leave. Not everyone is lucky to have a sibling in Kyiv or family established in a city. One of the first and most difficult issues the IDPs and refugees face is finding proper housing and work. The government gives out 400 grivna a month to help the IDPs resettle. That's around $14. Not nearly enough for an individual, much less a family to afford a place to stay. And this small compensation was not available immediately and is only available to those who are officially working. Work is extremely difficult for IDPs to find. Some businesses do not want to hire the new migrants, or if they do, they do not want it to be official. Many have reported that they get humiliated at job interviews and degraded. The people that were forced to flee were not able to sell their apartments. When whatever money they had with them runs out, many end up returning home in the war zone. I do not know how many. I know the Crimeans that did return must have relocated here for three to four months and then returned because they ran out of money for rent, for example. They couldn't find some sort of work to support themselves. This was in the beginning of 2014, these types of situations. Then even a percentage of those people returned again to Kiev because it was so horrible there. It is just getting worse and worse and worse. And people now understand that here it is difficult to find something, but at least they are in a normal country rather than be among the horrors taking place in Crimea. In terms of Donetsk, people returned when it became a territory of Ukraine, when there wasn't any distinct war going on in their towns. Donetsk IDPs don't hide the fact that they would return if there wasn't any military conflict occurring in their district. But the life in the East has not gotten easier as time has gone by. Pensioners who stayed in Donbass and don't cross over the line of contact haven't received their pension in over two years. 
it was a sad news. Our client, an 88-year-old woman, died. and she did not receive her pension since 2016, like more than uh, one year, a year and a half. Um, and during this period, she did not receive any assistance from the state. She was like, um, uh, like no one take took care of her. And fortunately, she had children, and the children they were able to see this woman so she was not like all alone but uh, we know many cases where the older people do not have any relatives do not have children and they are um, left without any care from the state the emotional and mental trauma that has been inflicted on the people affected by the conflict is prevalent Eastern Europe is not known for its accommodating behavior towards mental health, quite the opposite. In the past, if you were to mention mental health, people believed in one thing, schizophrenia. There is barely any support for depression or PTSD. People remain in denial or self-medicate with alcohol. And as much as the older generations may deny such things, you can see that alcoholism is the number one leading cause of death for men in Russia and second for women. Um, so they are not ready to kind of to talk about this trauma. They are not ready to um, some of them even to see it. Um, and this brings to the other challenges like um, violence, like alcoholism, because this is the way how you know how men think that they 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 could overcome their trauma. There is no yet official statistics about uh, the uh, violence in the families of IDPs, but there is anecdotal evidence that um, the violence is increasing because of the psychological problems. That was Natalia Karabowska, the director for People Affected by Conflict in Ukraine Project, part of the Ukrainian Women's Fund. Dislocation and death are not the only psychological pressures that have ended in violence and tragedy in the past five years. This past October, an 18-year-old student shot up his college in Kirch, one of the most ancient cities in Crimea. He killed 20 students and wounded over 70 more before killing himself. When watching the tape, experts were shocked because of how efficiently he had been reloading the gun in order to hit as many people as he did in that short period of time. While such incidents are numbingly common in the United States, they almost never happen in the former Soviet Union, or anywhere in Europe for that matter. The current schooling that has taken place in Crimea mimics that of the Soviet systems that my mother grew up with. Children wearing similar gray uniforms, and when they are teens, they are brought to shooting ranges to learn to put together and take apart AK-15s and practice shooting. My mom would tell me that how she remembers from the early 1980s that all the students in the Soviet Union had to learn how to use rifles because of the supposed looming threat, and that capitalist countries were about to invade any day. She remembers how they would all shoot at their respective targets and when going to retrieve the sheet of paper, hide a small nail under their sleeves to quickly punch holes into the target since they would all miss because they all had quite terrible aim and have enough right shots in order to get a good grade from the instructor. These aren't the only changes in Crimea since the Russian occupation began in 2014. Mosques are being torn down, 
cultural centers for Crimean Tatars, the indigenous population of Crimea, who have been killed and deported time and time again, are repurposed. Russia is following an old script applied to many oppressed minorities, rewriting history to say the community and culture didn't exist separately from the great Russian nation, Ruski Mir. Life in Crimea since 2014 has become very difficult. Crimea traditionally thrives off of a short summer tourist season for those to come enjoy its beaches, food, and the Black Sea. But 65% of the tourists were from elsewhere in Ukraine. Since 2014, the number of visiting Ukrainians dipped extremely low, leaving the beaches looking like ghost towns. Citizens are under constant scrutiny and observation, subjected to a level of surveillance and paranoia that Mustafa Jamilov, who spent 16 years in the Soviet camps as a prisoner of conscience, says is far worse than in Russia proper, and even worse than when it was in the Soviet Union since Stalin died in 1953. Social media is tracked. If someone were to like a Facebook post sharing an article that states that Crimea is Ukraine, they can be arrested and given a jail sentence up to five years. If anyone shows any support for Ukraine, such as displaying a Ukrainian flag, they are risking prison. Katerina fears for her brother and father, who stayed in Crimea, and who actively support Ukraine with the rest of the people. The day before I sat down with Katerina, her neighbor had been arrested for having a Ukrainian flag in his yard. Well, a neighbor reported to the police that he had a flag, and they interpreted that it was extremist nationalism. I do not know how they thought of that, how they can use this fact. It's just a flag by his house. That is why those who have a flag, they quietly hide it at home. You can't tell anyone that you have it so they don't report you. Coming to terms with the situation in Donbass and Crimea is very difficult, particularly for IDPs or those with family and friends living under occupation. I still struggle with accepting that I will not be able to visit. The U.S. Embassy warns U.S. citizens not to go to Crimea, since there is no way the embassy could help citizens if something goes wrong. In order to enter Crimea, you have to apply for a Russian visa, because the Russian border guards will not accept anything other. If I were to apply for a Russian visa, I could enter Crimea, but then would be barred from ever returning to Ukraine. Because by applying for a Russian visa in order to enter Crimea, I would be stating to the international world that I accept that Crimea is a part of the Russian Federation and not an illegally annexed or occupied territory. History is repeating itself. Forced far from home is a common story amongst Crimean Tatars time and time again. In 1783, when Catherine the Great ignored a treaty with Ottomans that guaranteed Crimean independence and annexed it. After the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution, when private property was seized by communist authorities. In May of 1944, when Stalin's secret police deported 500,000 Crimean Tatars in freight trains into Central Asia overnight, killing over 50% of the population in the first year, and only allowed to return 45 years later. And now in 2014 again, either fleeing or subject to repression and occupation. The last time I was in Crimea, I was 11 years old. I do not know when I'll be able to return. When I first started working on this podcast, my mom had just reconnected with her deceased father's family, including those whom we had no idea what happened to since the original deportation in 1944. My great-grandmother's younger sister still lives and remembers our family, but she is too old and too sick to travel to Ukraine, and we are not able to visit her. It gives us comfort finding family that has survived throughout the years, but it is difficult not knowing when we could ever have the pleasure of meeting all of them.
and it's difficult to come to terms with, particularly for people so attached to their place of birth and identity, what in Russian is called rodina, a combination of home and homeland, full of emotion and connection, more than for Americans when they use the word home. I understand that this is it for Crimea, and that I cannot return. It was so difficult. And only someone who has gone through this as well can understand this feeling. It was the same feeling as a rug being pulled from under your feet. And that rug was Ukraine. And suddenly, it became something you couldn't understand. They took your home. There is no home. I understand that I cannot return, to walk among the streets I grew up in. Many are barred from returning. I now see that once I came to terms with this, on how difficult this would all be. It felt like I lost a close friend. It just isn't there anymore. And that's that. And you just have to come to terms with it. And there is no homeland. There never will be. I fled because I couldn't exist in my homeland, couldn't walk in the homeland. I went to Poland for a few days, and it really helped me, specifically when I understood that it was the last of it. There's no going back. This helped me a lot. One of the most surprising experience gathering material for this podcast was when I would ask, what is the most memorable story of a refugee or IDP to the individuals interviewed? I was looking for something emotional, sad, even tear-jerking to give more depth. But every single interviewee focused on the successes and achievements of the IDPs they knew. A Crimean refugee who was a real estate agent who has come up to Ukraine to build apartments and sell them for cheap to other IDPs. The woman from Luhansk who has relocated to the small city of Starobelsk and started a campaign to implement public transportation that this town did not have and succeeded in creating an organization that holds public events in the town square to bring the town together, something that has never been done before. To the English teachers from the frontline towns of Popasna and Krimina, who fled from the towns like the Baltseva occupied by Russians and who have organized dances and plays for the children to perform in their new towns. Even when I asked questions about their uprooted lives, every single person proudly described how their fellow IDPs have succeeded, adapted, and found some hope in the midst of this crisis. That really shows you the character of Ukrainians and Crimeans, that even in the most difficult times, they are looking forward to progress with hope. It would be nice to have a neat ending to this story, but there is no real ending. The war keeps grinding on, taking more lives and displacing more people. Every day, something new happens on the front. In late January, 11 Ukrainian soldiers traveling in a truck at the front line were shot up by Russian forces. The number of displaced people continues to rise. Lives continue to be thrown into upheaval. I asked what could be done. The majority of the answers were the same. Acknowledge what is occurring in Ukraine. Spread the word. As a non-Ukrainian individual, there isn't much you can do except for not letting Russia get away with normalizing the whole situation. You can donate to organizations that provide for refugees and IDPs in Ukraine, such as the ones mentioned in this podcast. The All-Ukrainian Association of IDPs that Katerina founded, the Ukrainian Women's Fund that provides for single mothers and female IDPs, Right to Protection that provides legal support to immigrants and refugees, or volunteer next summer to teach English with Go Global. But sharing correct information is also powerful in this day and age. If someone denies Russia's war in Ukraine or doesn't seem to know much about it, 
let them know about what you know now. Point them to this podcast, to Winter on Fire on Netflix, or reputable journalism such as Radio Liberty's Krim Reale or Donbass Reale. And don't forget, Crimea is Ukraine. Donbass is Ukraine. Slava Ukraini. Glory to the heroes. I would like to thank everyone who sat down and took the time and energy to speak about this difficult topic. Thank you to Svetlana from Debaltseva, Mustafa Nayem, Ksana Neporichenka, Natalia Karabowska, Katerina Brukhanova, Alena Vinogradovna, Rustem Skibin, Mustafa Jemilev, Svetlana Zaleshuk, Vlad Zaharai, Rustem Umerov, Anne Donahue, my mother and her family. I would like to thank the group Pigartiska Tertsia, who opened their rights to their singing of the Plivakacha for public use, the song that became the hymn for the Heavenly Hundred, to Alexander Chubukin for letting me use his clip of the Battle of the Baltseva, to Chef Morka for allowing me to use his arrangement and performance of Sark Alveri, written by Milan Zavkov, that was his Crimean Tatar music playing in the background, to Hannah Shoy for helping me record and edit this podcast, and most of all, I would like to thank whoever is listening to this podcast because it means that you are supporting those who want to be heard.